0: Well, awesome. Well, today is a day, certainly, to celebrate. And have you noticed lately that it seems like every day we are told that there's something else that we have to celebrate? Yeah, you know, you keep seeing these things posted on social media or whatever, where that today is a national such-and-such day, kind of these ridiculous holidays that have been created over the years. I don't know where these things come, come from, but uh, ultimately, uh, there, I, I realized this week that there's a, a website actually called nationaltoday.com. And it lists all of these made-up kind of holidays that have been created over the past number of years. Really interesting. Um, You know, and I didn't realize it, but ultimately you can celebrate something pretty much every single day of the year if you want, if you follow this uh, nationaltoday.com calendar. Um, This month alone, we've had, uh, uh, what, going back to May 4th, we had Star Wars Day, right? May the 4th be with you. We had... uh, um, I guess it, it was, the other day was International No Diet Day, so uh, that's like every day for me, so No Diet Day. Uh, nurses Day, didn't realize that, so uh, sorry to our nurses in here if I forgot to send you a card. Um, get this, on, on May 6th, it was National Tourist Appreciation Day for all of those unappreciated tourists. And then, uh, And then actually yesterday, if you forgot to celebrate, it was World Migratory Bird Day. So uh, next year, I decide I'm just going to combine those and uh, take a flight down to Mexico and get them both celebrated at the same time. Thanks for the token laugh there on that one. Appreciate that. But, uh, and then uh, mark your calendars. June 4th, coming up, less than a month away. A holiday we all need to avoid, because it's actually an anti-holiday. It is Hug Your Cat Day. So uh, avoid that one. But all these things are are pretty ridiculous, they're absurd, these things that we come up with. But uh, if there is one thing, one day that deserves a day to celebrate, it is for our mothers. And so we do say happy Mother's Day to all of our moms here today. We thank you for your love, for your care, your dedication, the sacrifice in the lives of your children and your families. Motherhood is a weighty calling. It's rightly to be recognized, it's rightly to be celebrated on a day such as this. And uh, mothers rarely receive the recognition that they deserve and the thanks that they uh, that they have earned. And so uh, today we recognize the role of all of our mothers in our lives. And at the same time, I also want to recognize that today can actually be a day that's carried with many mixed emotions. You know, today, for many, truly is a day to celebrate and to recognize the loving mothers that we've been given. And then for others, today may be a day that's marked by grief. A day in which maybe you experience the first Mother's Day without your mom around. And so it's a, it's a day that, that has, has many different emotions running through it. For some, it may be a day that's marked by confusion and struggle because of a strained relationship with your mom. For some women here, Mother's Day might be a reminder of what you long for, and yet God is not yet brought to reality in your life. And so whatever season of of life you find yourself in, whatever emotions you struggle with, we recognize that God sees you. He understands you. And like many things in life, this side of Christ's return, we can experience that unique combination of both joy and lament that can come together. And so, so we thank you, mothers, For your, for your gift of dedication and love for your children, and we recognize the unique experiences that we all have and the fact that we live in a world that ultimately is being redeemed by God. So as we move on, I'd invite you guys to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew. Now, if you looked at your bulletin, uh, you might have the wrong passage there. It's not Matthew chapter 10, but it is actually Matthew chapter 20 that we're gonna be in. So Matthew chapter 20 is where we're gonna be today. Probably noticing we're taking a break from our uh, study. Through the book of Genesis, as we 've been walking through the books of Genesis, um, originally uh, a few weeks back, Aaron asked me to preach on this day and as I looked at the calendar uh, the the text that was slotted was genesis chapters thirty four through thirty six and uh, if you 're not familiar with those with those chapters, we run across a pretty brutal story, and I know we've covered a lot of crazy things uh, as we've walked through Genesis and different parts of the Bible, but uh, this one gets kind of Kind of, the bar is kind of raised in terms of what we see there. It's a rather disturbing story. So I, uh, you know, as we're, we're committed to preaching through the Bible and uh, not skipping over passages, we, uh, as I was looking at that, I, I kind of said something like this to Aaron. I was like, hey, Aaron, uh, how am I supposed to get up and say Happy Mother's Day? And then turn to everybody and say, hey, let's all look at a classic text on rape and mass murder. And so I said to Aaron, I said, hey, why don't I take today and preach something different? And then you can handle that next week. <laughs> so next week, you got to come back because it's going to be a fun sermon for sure. It's going to be great. So uh, today we're, we're going to take a quick break and just to kind of give you guys uh, uh, you know, a forecast of where we're heading. Uh, today we're going to look in Matthew chapter 20. Next week we will be back in Genesis chapters 34 through 36, which will take us up to the story of Joseph. And then we're going to take a break for the summer. And over the summer months, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, which records Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to spend the summer on the Mount, uh, walking through Jesus' teaching in those chapters. And so I'm excited about that. And then at the end of uh, the summer, into the fall, we will pick up with Genesis and finish our study through the book of Genesis this next fall. So that's what you guys can expect moving forward. So today, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. So let me read this for us as we get going. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. And to give his life a ransom for many. Let's all pray this morning. Our God, we lift our eyes to you this morning. Recognizing that you are the creator of all things. You have brought us here by your power and by your spirit. And so we look to you in this passage of scripture. As we look to behold the nature of your kingdom. We look to you this morning. We thank you for the gift of the mothers in this room and the mothers that so many of us may be apart from today. We thank you for that gift of motherhood. We recognize you as you have declared yourself to be our father. And yet, throughout Scripture, we also see that there's no other description than that of motherhood that you even take on to, to, to describe the way that you have compassion. It's the compassion of a mother. The way that you seek to protect us is as a mother protects her children. And so we even see those characteristics of all of our mothers that reflect your image and your nature to us as well. So I pray that we would rejoice in those realities today. We rejoice in you as our, as our good king. So open up our eyes to see wonderful things from your word this morning. Let our hearts be drawn to worship you in spirit and in truth. It's in the glorious name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. So today, as we, uh, as we look at this chapter, or this, this section in Matthew chapter 20, let me just start and ask all the mothers here, what is your greatest desire for your children? What's your greatest desire for your children? You know, for, for many young mothers in here, you know, there may be mixed uh, answers to that. For maybe some young mothers, you're just asking, man, my b- biggest desire is that they would sleep through the night. Can I get an amen? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, for other mothers, maybe it's just you just get through a meal without a plate of food on the floor. I know for my wife, one of her greatest desires right now is that our kids would just simply find the center of the toilet. <laughs> Others, you know, maybe your desire is that, that your kids would do well in school. They'd be successful and maybe they could get into a good college Others maybe desire for their kids to move out of your house and to uh, maybe get a stable job, maybe to get married, to have grandchildren for you. Others may desire for them to excel in athletics, to, to get maybe potentially get a scholarship. Maybe others just want their kids to have opportunity. So you're willing to do anything to, to kind of shape and, and, and fuel their passions and what they're interested in, to give them opportunity to, to, to succeed in, in what they, they want to do. Maybe others are just sitting there saying, I just want my kids to survive in this crazy world and not just mess up their lives. Maybe others would just say, I want nothing more than to see my kids come to faith. We'd have a lot of maybe different answers and desires, and what we see in this passage is this this mother, this mother who has a deep desire for her children to succeed, And so as we walk through this passage, we're just going to see it in three simple movements that are in your bulletin there. In verses 20 to 21, we're going to see a mother's request. Verses 22 to 23, we're going to see the Savior's response. And in verses 24 to 28, we will see a kingdom lesson. So let's dive in here. Here we have the mother, it says, of James and John coming up to Jesus. And as she kneels before him, she says, can I ask you for something? And Jesus simply responds, what do you want? And what do we know about this woman, this this mother? We don't know a whole lot. um, But as we piece together a a few different narratives from the Gospels, it it, it becomes uh, almost clear that, that this is potentially a woman named Salome, who is likely the sister of Jesus' mother Mary. So this would make her potentially Jesus' aunt, and therefore James and John, Jesus' cousins. Now it's not certain, but it, but it is, it is likely, from what we know, and as we, as we bring together different accounts from the Gospels. And so potentially what we have here is this woman coming and asking Jesus for a family favor. She comes saying, hey Jesus, would you do a little something for your cousins, or at the very least for these faithful followers of you? You know they've been they've been following you from day one. They uh you know at the the beginning of Matthew we see James and John leave their father their family business as their as their, their fishermen. They've left it all. They've abandoned the family and they've they've left everything to follow Jesus down this path. And and for their mom it's like well you've left everything. I hope this works out and I hope this leads towards some kind of future for you. And so she's asking, saying, hey, they've been following you faithfully. They're, they're committed to you. And, uh, Jesus, you keep talking about this kingdom, this kingdom that you're going to set up. It's just over and over everywhere Jesus went. He talked about this kingdom. And so she responds and she's saying, hey, hey, you know, you seem to be gaining quite a following now. A lot of, a lot of momentum moving forward here. The, the the polls are, are tracking in a good direction. So, hey, Uh, Why don't you promise and commit to, once you get this system set up, when you have your influence and your power established, don't you think you could promise my boys the first seats of honor, of privilege, of places of authority in this new regime? She's basically calling shotgun for her boys. She wants them to have cabinet positions. These places secured ahead of time. And certainly, James and John are there with her, and they're saying, "Yeah, Jesus, we've been here. We've been following you. This is this is a great idea. This is what we we want. We want to be here. We're part of your inner circle, kind of the closest ones and disciples to you. We've kind of earned this right. So uh, why don't you do us a favor, bring us along with you in this ruling power?" See, this mother sees an opportunity for her children to succeed. And she pursues it by trying to pressure Jesus into promising this to her boys. And if we're honest, as as parents, as mothers, fathers, can't we relate to the heart of this mother, this desire that she has? We long to see our children succeed, right? We want them to do well at everything that they do. We want them to be taken care of. And out of a deep love for our kids, we, we want what is best for them. And ultimately, wouldn't you do anything for your children? Isn't this parental desire, this this deep longing, love and desire, what causes even the wealthiest in in our world to to pay money and cheat to try to get their kids what you know into into school or whatnot? Right. It's this this deep longing desire. We long for our kids to excel, to succeed, and it comes from a loving heart. But the thing that Jesus in this passage is, challenges us with is our conception of success and greatness. And as Jesus responds to this mother and to his disciples, he reveals to us our often misguided motives and points us to the upside down values of his kingdom. She, like the disciples, do not yet have a full category for the kingdom of heaven. They are still operating in the kingdom of man. And the kingdom that Jesus keeps talking about throughout this book, it's something we're going to highlight and we're going to talk about a lot over the summer as we look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. All throughout Matthew, there's this, this one of the major themes is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says it. He, he declares it wherever He goes. It's this inbreaking of His rule and His reign over all things that ultimately transforms this world and it transforms us. But they don't see it yet. They can't fully see what he means by this kingdom. They still think that he's going to set up some kind of political rule within the nation of Israel. They're thinking in merely human terms. But this is this mother's request. Bring my kids into power. Give my kids greatness. I want my kids to succeed. So then we move on in the narrative 2, verses 22 to 23, where we see the Savior's response. And I love Jesus' response here. He simply says, Lady, you do not know what you're asking for. You do not know what you're asking. And then Jesus, as he often does, responds to her question with another question of his own. And he says, Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? He's speaking to James and John, saying, you guys want to sit with me? You want to sit next to me? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And James and John, they quickly respond ignorantly, oh yeah, oh yeah, we're in. We can do it. We're, we got it. We can drink that cup. We're, we're with you. So what, is, what does Jesus mean by this? Because he smirkingly probably sits there and responds, hey, you will drink my cup. And Jesus is is using this this language of the cup, speaking figuratively to the suffering that He would endure on the cross. It specifically in the Old Testament refers ultimately to the outpouring of the wrath of God upon sin and judgment upon the nations. And Jesus knows that as His followers, they are going to suffer. And we see that later on in history and in the life of of the disciples. But at this point, they have no clue what he's getting at, and what he's talking about. But Jesus says to them, you don't know, you don't see what you're asking and what you're wanting. So what about us? When we ask God for something, do we know what we're asking for? When you say that you're following Jesus, do you know what the implications are? When you pray for God... To take your kids, when you, when you, even as the 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 Smiths did, as we dedicate our kids to God's kingdom, to be used for His glory, for His purposes, do you know what that might mean? Because what we want and what we think we need may not come through the means that we expect. And Jesus is saying, if we want success and if we want glory in His kingdom, then we must quickly reshape our expectations. James and John quickly respond and say, we can drink your cup. And Jesus is saying, be careful what you ask for. If you commit your life to Jesus and to his purposes, are you ready to receive whatever he chooses to give you? This is something that uh, even God has, has has taught me and specifically my wife even in the past number of years in, in 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 our life, many of you know our story. But uh, after our third child was born, uh, my wife had uh, gotten to this point where we thought we were done having kids. And uh, Jess was kind of pursuing, "Hey, what's next?" She was kind of leaving some of the burden and some of just the chaos of what what the demands of kind of with real, really young children. So she was really praying to God and asking, "Hey, what's next for for me in my life and everything?" As I've been investing so much in these kids. What's next for me? And she was even reading a book called Anything, which really just was calling uh, her to to, to say, hey, what can you offer to God? Are you willing to offer God anything with your life? And so she was responding to that and praying, hey, and maybe we can invite somebody into our home to care for them. Maybe I can use my time to care for other people. What what are the ways in which God is going to use me? And then little did she know that the one thing that God actually chose to then give her in her life was the one thing she least expected and even in many ways wanted at the time was an unexpected fourth child of our own. And so God has his ways of of, of giving us these things that that, that we don't necessarily expect, we don't necessarily know what we're asking for, but he knows that for us, that was the very thing that we needed and that he was going to use to shape us and our family. So do you know when you ask for God to use you to, to commit your life to him, do you know what that might mean? Do you realize the implications? Because to sit at Jesus' right hand and his left hand ultimately was to say, I'm willing to walk down a path of suffering with you, Jesus. And Jesus reminds us, and he's challenging us with the reality that we so often, don't we, just like James and John's mother, like his disciples, don't we often try to use Jesus as a means to get what we want instead of inviting God to use whatever means to give us what we need? And Jesus moves on. He says, you will drink my cup. But he says, to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to give. And We see this Trinitarian uh, relationship between God and his father. He says, that is for my father to determine and who he has appointed. He's, he's saying, this isn't how my kingdom works. It's not like a political appointment. It's not like a new coaching staff. When you get in, you get, a, get your, your people in the right place. He says that, that, that Jesus' kingdom is ruled by a different set of standards. And so Jesus responds to challenge their assumptions about the reign that he is bringing. And Jesus is ultimately saying that you don't bring me into your kingdom, but I'm bringing you into mine. And so it requires a reshaping of everything that we assume. And then the passage moves on in the final verses, verses 24 through 28, to this third Point that we can see where we Jesus offers a kingdom lesson. A kingdom lesson. What we see is that upon hearing about this request made by James and John and their mother, how do the other disciples respond? The, the other ten disciples, they hear about this, and it says that they were indignant. They were enraged by what these, these folks had asked for. And why were they angry? It wasn't just because they're saying, come on, guys. You know that's not how Jesus works. Come on, that's a foolish question. No, no. the sense is they were angry because they wanted those positions for themselves. How dare those two try to sneak a side deal with Jesus? And you can imagine the arguing and the criticism that breaks out among the disciples. Because certainly, I've I've been just as faithful as them, or I've done more than they have, wouldn't I deserve those places? And they argue, Who, who's the greatest? Who deserves to sit right at Jesus' side? And can you sense that same ongoing struggle in your own heart? This is the, this is the, the, the poison that goes back to the, the story of Cain and Abel. God, you're going to accept his sacrifice? You're going to look favorably upon them? What about me? I want that. We have this, this, this is how we function in the kingdom of man. I want those places for me. I want that position for me. And we still wrestle with the curse of pain. Then in verse 25, we see Jesus as he does as a, as, a, as, a, as a graceful teacher to them. He says, guys, gather up, gather up. He says, stop, stop. Gather up, we got to have a talk here. He says this to them, he says, you guys know how things work out here, right? He says, you know that the Gentiles, so, so for them, the Gentiles are all these probably Roman rulers that are around exercising lordship and have been, you know, oppressing the people and the nation of, of Israel and the Jews for, for quite some time. So he's saying, you guys, you guys know the Romans are here, you guys know the Gentiles that are here, how do they operate? It says, says that they lorded over them. Says says their great ones exercise authority over them. How it works is just, is just by pure might, by power, exercising your strength, your authority over others is how things get established and places of, of superiority and hierarchy get determined around here. Jesus says, He's saying to them, look out at the culture around you. Look at how it works. You guys see it? You guys know it? Observe what's going on in the kingdom of man and how it operates. Because he says you're thinking with the wrong set of kingdom principles. And is our world any different? How is greatness achieved? How do we get success in our world? And we could sit here and come up with a laundry list of ways in which people pursue greatness, pursue success. And all of them would be tied to these conceptions of status, of power, influence, wealth, prestige, recognition. seen as we, as we try to climb the ladder, the ways we try to put ourselves first, where we don't let others slow us down. It's every small way in which we cry out in this world, look at me, look at me. And Jesus is saying that, that's how it works, and we all know it. We all know how that operates in our world. We see it. And it's the, it's this poison that, that infects us all so easily. But what does Jesus tell them? He says, it shall not be so among you. This is not the way it's gonna work with you. With my followers are not gonna, are not gonna behave in this way. Are not gonna pursue greatness in this way. He says, you will not lord your power over others. You will not use others to serve your own interests. You will not put others down so you can lift yourself up. He says, if you are following me, Jesus says, then you have to abandon the greatness game that is played in man's kingdom. You don't have to play by those rules. And Jesus says, you want to know how things work in my kingdom and how greatness is achieved? Then let me tell you. He says, whoever's going to be great among you must be your servant. Greatness is displayed through service to others. Then he says, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. He doubles down, uses even a different word from from servant. He uses this word slave, doulos. A, a, a slave or even an indentured servant, somebody who has sold themselves into slavery to pay off a debt. These are the ones who are going to be found to be great in Christ's kingdom. But the natural question is why? Why, why is this the way it works? Because... Boy, honestly, if you look out there, you, you take that approach in the workplace, in the business world, in life, you're going to get run over. People are going to walk all over you if you pursue this way of life. So, so why does this work? Why does this, why does this matter? And this is where verse 28 is so important as it says this. It says, even as, or just as, Jesus here is introducing the reason why this model of greatness is established in his kingdom. And it's sourced in Jesus Himself. He says, even as the Son of Man, this title going back to the book of Daniel in which this, this Son of Man appears in this vision, this human one who, who is going to receive this everlasting dominion, this eternal reign, this eternal kingdom. Jesus attributes that title to Himself as the fulfillment of this Son of Man prophecy. He says, the Son of Man, I have come not to be served, but to serve And then he says, To give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus came into this world not to be served. You see, in the kingdom of man, it's the kings who have servants. But in the kingdom of God, the servants are kings. And King Jesus here serves us by giving his life as a ransom. This word ransom would have been used to refer to the money that's paid to buy back prisoners of war. Or money paid that's that's given to pay off a debt that is incurred. Maybe a slave, if you you had a debt that you could not pay, you could just sell yourself as a slave to pay that off. And so if, if money was paid then to cover that debt, you could be freed. This is what a ransom would have been. And so Jesus is saying... That he gives his life in exchange for the freedom of those who are enslaved. And in what sense are we enslaved? It says in Romans, as Paul says, we are ultimately enslaved to sin. And this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of what Jesus is saying. In this passage, Jesus is clearly describing the substitutionary nature of his death. That Jesus gives his life in our place as our substitute. And it's his blood that covers or atones for our sins. The cup that Jesus drinks is the outpouring of God's wrath through his suffering and his death on the cross, so that sin can be covered and that we can then receive the righteousness of Christ through faith, so that we can be declared justified or be declared just as if we had never sinned. And it's this act of service, this salvation. This redemption that Jesus says he came to accomplish, and it's this which defines the model of greatness that will rule in his kingdom. It's an awesome passage. Beautiful passage, one we should take to memory. But what do we do with this text then as a people? How do we we apply this? You know, as I thought about this this week, you know, my my initial response was like, well, okay, I got to. I got to find out, find creative ways to kind of challenge us to serve more, right? We just need, we need to serve more. So all these opportunities and ways we could serve, and we just need to be a people who serve. And uh, as I as I thought about this, as I looked closely at what Jesus was saying, it struck me that we are called not just to acts of service, but to a life of being a servant. And I believe there's a big difference between serving occasionally. Carving out some time to serve or, or, or commit to serving somebody, doing it occasionally, but, but, and, and being a servant. There's a difference between occasionally serving and being and embodying the life of a servant. You know, you, you think, why do we have to be challenged even to serve? Why don't we just naturally do it? You know, it's, it's not the default wiring of our heart, is it? We're wired to seek to serve ourselves, to be served by others. And Jesus recognized we need something to change deeply inside of us. He's saying we need transformation inside to grasp what he's saying. And we see throughout Jesus' teaching over and over that in his kingdom, it's not about mere outward performance, but it's about inward renewal. So how do we become servants we have to grasp and it's not just pass over, but grasp and reflect deeply on what Jesus has just said. That we have been enslaved to sin. We have incurred a debt that we cannot pay. But God, in His love, sends forth Jesus to pay that debt with His own life. And as we are ransomed, we are raised to new life, and then it's the gospel that actually frees us to serve because we are brought into a new kingdom. We, we have a new view of success. We no longer need the approval and adoration and praise from others. So we don't have to lift ourselves up. We don't have to display what we have accomplished. But we recognize that, as Paul says in Ephesians, we have been seated with God in the heavenlies. We are made great in Christ. And as we embrace this new life in His kingdom and we see the transforming work of the Spirit affect that change in us, our whole mindset can then shift where we see greatness through a totally new set of lenses, where the way up is the way down and the way to be exalted is to be made low. So as you consider your own heart today, do you tend to keep a tally of the ways in which you've served? Then maybe do you pat yourself on the back and do you, do you hope that everybody else notices and affirms all of that service that you've done? Or is service just a default rhythm of your heart? And I'll admit this is how I often respond even in my own home as my wife will graciously and lovingly sometimes challenge me in, in, in maybe some ways I could help out more. Maybe I could get involved more. Things that I'm not seeing. That I could support her more in the house. And, and what is my default response? My response is actually to defend, to say, hey, hey, whoa, whoa. Hey, I can list all these different things that I've done. I serve. I serve around here. I could could make a list for you of all the the things that I've done as if I've filled up some kind of quota of service. So then I kind of deserve the right to check out and then just kind of can, you know, get some me time, right? Isn't that how we often operate? Instead of just thinking, oh, I'm a servant. Yeah, I want to... I want to live that out. I want to embody a life of a servant. So what does becoming a servant look like in our world? I think it looks a lot like what Paul describes of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, where he says this. He tells us, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. You think of ambition and we think, man, that's... That's a good thing. Like all of us like like ambition is what, what we should be driven for. What kind of ambition do you have to make something of your life to do something with yourself? But here we see that this, this Paul saying don't have selfish ambition. And uh Michael Horton, theologian writes this about this where he says it seems obvious that selfish ambition entertains bad company in the Bible. It is the spirit that corrupted Lucifer in God's royal court. It is the venom that filled Adam's heart with swollen pride and the vain conceit that erected the Tower of Babel. Selfish ambition is the self-love that seeks to ascend beyond the skies in a solo flight away from God and the community of fellow creatures. Don't we oftentimes pursue that kind of ambition? To lift ourselves up, to make ourselves great, to pursue greatness as we conceive it. Paul says don't do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider or count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, don't, don't look only on your own interests, but also look at the interests of others. Look outside yourself. And he says, have this mind among yourselves. So this is not just mere set of actions. I can't give you a list of things you need to do. He says you need to have a shift of Mindset. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. As his followers, this is what has been given to us to change our mind. And it's the mind of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, though he was God, he did not equality with God, something that he had to grasp, that he had to hold on to and lift up and, and, and display, but, but rather, says he's emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, you get that human form. He was God, but he took on human form. I think it's lost on us sometimes because we think we're pretty awesome, right? We make videos that are, people are awesome. And we do do cool things. But for God, that's not a good thing to be found in human form. Would you become a fish to save the fish? God takes on human form. As a servant, he humbles himself and becomes obedient unto death. Not obedient just to giving up a weekend. Obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. This is the the pattern of, of service and of being a servant that is set forth for us as his people to be transformed to have this mindset. And there are a thousand ways in which this could look in our world. And even does look in our community. It may look like a father who works hard all week, comes home at the end of a long day, stressed out, who comes in, wants nothing more than to grab a beer and sit in front of ESPN for a little bit, but yet recognizes that his wife has been home with a sick kid. So he steps in, in his exhaustion, to care for that child and to take that burden on himself. It may look like you in your workplace in which that coworker who hasn't been there as long as you, who doesn't seem to work as hard as you, gets promoted and recognized ahead of you. And you, faithfully do your work, you congratulate them and you serve in your workplace. It may look like you celebrating the friend getting married when your heart is battling jealousy because you wish that it was you. It looks like all of our mothers in here who are constantly losing sleep as they pray over kids who just woke up with a nightmare. It looks like our mothers who sacrifice their schedule to run their kids around all their appointments and all their sporting events with very little thanks. It looks like all the folks who show up here every week as our life groups come and clean the building, who, who, who fill our communion cups, who, who print our bulletins, those who mow our lawn here at the building. I could go on and on. It looks like all these acts of service that we see regularly taking place throughout this body, and so I don't want to stand up here and just say, hey, you guys need to serve more. Like, We serve. This is a body that serves each other, that brings meals to each other when, when someone has just had a baby or is going through a difficult time and was sick. And so, so I don't know that, that I need to just be told to tell us all to serve more. But I think Jesus is, is telling us and challenging us to continue to grow to just be servants. And when we all become servants of Christ, service is just natural. It's just normal. It's what we do. And it may be normal for us, but that's going to be radical in this world. And so Jesus calls in this passage us not simply just to serve more, but He calls us to behold the One who has served us. And only as we recognize the service that Jesus offers through the ransom of His life can we find the transformation that we need to become servants of righteousness. So mothers... Parents here, I ask you again, what do you desire most for your kids? Yes, we should teach our kids and encourage our kids to pursue greatness. But let's just make sure that it's greatness defined by the right kingdom. Let's be careful not to stress our kids' GPA at the expense of their spiritual DNA. Let's try to not be obsessed with their stat sheet and neglect their heart. Jesus is telling us to remember and recognize the kingdom to which we belong. Its, its foundation is completely different. The way it operates is completely different. It's completely foreign. And in a few weeks, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6. And not to steal anybody's thunder, but I love this passage where Jesus challenges us. And he talks about these things that we do, specifically when you, when you give. When you pray and when you fast, Jesus says, hey, don't do those things. Don't pursue those things in a way that you're trying to get people to recognize you, to see how great you are. He says, just do it. And then in each of those things, he repeats this phrase over and over. He says this. He says, "He says, just remember that your Father in heaven who sees in secret knows. And so today we could sit here and recognize many acts of service. But as we specifically think of our mothers today, And the mothers who are here today, man, mothers are are just the the greatest servants, aren't they? Mothers just do so much. Moms, when when you don't feel recognized and valued, when you don't feel worthy, when you struggle with how the world sees you as maybe you've put a career on hold to spend time with your kids, Or maybe for you mothers who feel judged because you need to work to provide for your kids. When you feel that you're constantly sacrificing for others and pouring yourself out, and you wonder if anyone knows, you wonder if anyone cares. When you struggle with comparison to other moms, as if they think they just seem to have it all figured out and they're crushing it, and you just are trying to do your best. Remember these words of Jesus that your Father in heaven sees and He knows. And in His eyes, you are the greatest. Because just as Jesus came, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for all of us. So let's strive this week as we move forward, not just to fill up our checklist of ways that we serve, but to embody the life of servants. Remember that we have been served so much by Christ and how that will transform the way that we look at service so we don't have to begrudge when when our service isn't recognized or begrudge when, when it seems like we're doing so much and other people aren't doing anything. Let's just own the role of servants that God has made us to be and in His kingdom We are exalted. We are are lifted up with Christ. And it's this model that defines the kingdom of God in which we are called to live. Let's pray together. Father, we look to you, the one who has paid his life as our ransom. And it's because of that ransom that has been given, the debt that has been cleared on our accounts, that we can stand before you holy and justified. We can be united with you, exalted with you. So I pray that we would live in light of the kingdom that we have been transferred into, that we would recognize how great we have been served and allow us just to overflow with a life of service. Again, we thank you for our moms who constantly lay down their lives as you have called us all to. So we just ask for your strengthening power to live these things out, to continue to to understand and see this vast kingdom to which you have called us to. And we ask this in the name of Jesus alone. Amen.